Hey everyone, hey, welcome into this episode of the Artwonk Podcast. This is episode 35, and I'm your host Neville. Today I'm going to be talking with a wonderful man by the name of Bruce Fergus. Bruce is a wood artist extraordinaire, and we're going to be exploring the idea of transitioning from being a crafts-based maker to an art-based maker. So, you know, what, what, what type of thinking do you need to shift to move from one form to another form? Bruce made that transition himself, and I've found Bruce to be a wise man. We've been great mates for now 15-plus years, uh, and in that time we've shared gallery spaces and we've shared shows in other galleries, we've collaborated on artworks, and it really has been quite joyful for me to be able to be around somebody who's as wise and as generous as Bruce is. So, of course, what happens when you know somebody so well is it is tricky to interview them because I know the answers, or at least I thought I knew the answers. But as always, Bruce manages to surprise me with insights and different ways of looking at things that I hadn't thought about. So this conversation was one that was a joy for me and I hope is going to be enlightening for you. So here's Bruce. Right, so we've got the lovely Mr. Bruce Fergus with us. Hey, welcome, Bruce. How are you doing? Uh, Well, 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 very good, Nev. Oh, look, hey, thank you very much for joining us on this episode. Today, I was wanting to chat with you about this transitional mindset thing, how to take yourself from being a craftsperson across to being an artist in terms of how you think about it, you know, what you did, because I, I was present watching you go through that transformation and um, at least some of it. Uh, it was really interesting seeing how you evolved through it. So can you share with us, so start off, what's your medium of choice and how, how you go about what you make? Uh, my medium of choice is wood, and uh, that's primarily because it's available. And uh, most Kiwi blokes have all the gear to do something to wood. And uh, I start off uh, as one of those turning things on a lathe. So you know that, that was where my joining um, my ideas with uh, the medium of wood kicked off. But you work in other media as well, don't you? Yes. The, the prime one is wood, but uh, I supplement it with metallic items, uh, you know, wires, sheet metals, and fabrics, including things like tapa cloth. Some of the uh, items can also be addressed with uh, loo paper and PVA glue, which, which can uh, form beautiful textures. Uh, and then when subjected to colouring, uh, you would never know the origins. No, but I imagine you have a bit of a shortage of supply right now with everyone binge buying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he beats the old person out of way in the, the supermarket line. I've got art to make, woman. <laughs> yeah, move over, buddy. Yes. It's interesting because that the use of tissue I was first exposed to with uh, the work of Gail Montgomery, who uh, she in, in some ways was a mentor and uh, she used a, a number of finishes, which included tissue and the and PVA, and then uh, using uh, copper-based paints and things of that sort. Beautiful work that she did, and I, I aspired to do similar things early in my career with uh, using the lake. So, would she have been somebody who you'd describe as a craft person or an artist? How did you know she was obviously an influence? I would describe her as an artist. Uh, it was interesting, let's say, the, the early stages of uh, using the, the tools uh, like the lathe. The items that uh, were produced were essentially functional. Uh, and then I was exposed to uh, the work of people like Gail Montgomery and one of my real mentors, Graham Priddle, who, who lived just north of Whangarei. And they opened my eyes to the idea that wooden items, even off the lathe, could become uh, artistic items. And the exposure to magazines like Craft Arts and using YouTube and the net to see some of the stunning work that was available, it was a real eye-opener to know that you could go that far 
A with our ordinary material of wood and then uh, using the uh, tools like a lathe and power tools and hand tools and the like. So uh, from those craft beginnings, uh, as soon as the eyes were opened, away I went. Uh, And then, of course, not that long into uh, being here in Marlborough, I crossed swords with you and then it all happened after that. We definitely have had quite a bit of fun over the years, haven't we? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so when when it comes to your mental state, how do you define the difference between a craft artist and a, you know, inverted commas, just an artist, somebody who, who aspires to make art versus functional form? Or, is there a distinction? I guess, you know, given that the, the medium of wood allows for functional items to be created, I guess my definition or sort of for me Things that you can do something with, I would define sort of in in the craft arena loosely, things to look at and enjoy visually and also, uh, you know, with tactile influence as well, I would describe as art. For me, uh, most of my work is fired with imagination and crazy ideas that sometimes turn out to be just that, totally crazy, but often... uh, have a, have a message somewhere in there so that the aha stage gets reached at some point. I love that aha. But, yeah. Yes. So for, for me, art is something that you can sit back and enjoy in the same way you can enjoy maybe the shape and form of some of the crafted items, but I would have those as something you can actually use. So function first and then form next. So when you're doing your making then and you're exploring an idea, do you work with a narrative? Is there a driving force behind the way you go about getting from craft into art? No, I think the items that I would consider to be art that, that I have formed come from a genesis of maybe a word, a situation, a, a philosophy, sometimes a, a religious belief, not necessarily my own, but others, that spark off a train of ideas that in some cases turn into something tangible and other ways they just noted as being interesting. So uh, when I was talking with Jason recently, I mentioned your box of ideas. <laughs> it's something that I lust after. It is such a wonderful resource. I've seen you go to it and you know you rework ideas from the past with a new view as, as life changes around you or you change within it. I've seen you work with a um, series of ideas. You run a theme and some of them have run for quite a few years. Is that something that is a natural state or was that a decision to, to pick up on something and then see how many ways you can interpret and explore it? Probably uh, the latter. I do a lot of work in, in what I would call series. If an idea gets sparked off and there is the opportunity to do a number of creations within that theme, and I guess the longest running of the themes would be uh, Pacifica. And some of the earliest pieces were in that uh, arena and uh, and they're still there. And now we're talking here about 2005, 2006. That theme is still being pursued. One of the earliest items, which was bought by a local surgeon, he and his wife have just bought the latest piece in that series. So that's something like a 15-year gap between their initial purchase and, and their latest purchase, which I find is fascinating. So that they the idea of exploring how can I express things that relate, in this case, to Pacifica, if we're looking at that theme, where the sea, uh, the lands, the movement of currents, the winds, aqua life and the bird life, all of those things that relate to our Pacific Ocean area. And uh, and we are part of, of that whole arena. And so... That's an example of how within a series you can go on for a long time and explore a total range of ideas. And one of the weirdest, I guess, uh, themes was the the Grail and sparked off after reading the Da Vinci Code. So you took on this concept of precious object, really, didn't you? 
Mm. True. They may not be functional, but they, uh, they they may be handled comfortably, and that's uh, where attention to finishing details. It, it's always been interesting, even with turned items, if they're there on display and, and for sale, inevitably the people who would stroke the finished surface would be women. And when I mentioned Gail Montgomery earlier, one of the commercial tips that she gave me was that women will make the decision, men may well pay, don't have sharp angular edges, make things soft uh, and rounded. And uh, she was right. Uh, (laughs) Gail. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to take my commercial hat off. Her, as well as admiring her, her artistic ability as well. Now, I've, I've watched, like with the Grail series, um, your transition through the ideas moved relatively quickly. The Shaky Isle series that you worked on, which you were doing well before we had the big South Island earthquakes that changed the landscape and the way a lot of us view the world completely. Now, you'd been working on that before the earthquake came along, but did those type of events then actually give you a a, a refocus or did they just give you permission to explore the ideas more fully because others were now attuned to this concept of movement and transition? I think permission, uh, or I would use the word acceptance of of the idea. uh, One of the the really interesting things was the, the, the Shaky Isles idea is that abstract pieces can be created in, I guess, with almost any uh, shape or form, as long as it is underlined by the idea of movement, fracture, something of that sort, or uh, in the, really in the case of the edge of the Pacific Rim, volcanic eruptions, the, the shifting tectonic plates, all of those things, they... Uh, are an extension of the idea of the shaky isles and that whole what has nature created and how can we look at that and how can we then create a visual that highlights some of those aspects. It's interesting to me when you look at that concept, this thing of I'm going to stick with your shaky isle process for a little while. When you're talking earthquakes and people's homes and lives have been completely tipped upside down, there's an element of risk that what you're going to make is so emotive uh, and so triggering for people's experiences, but memories and other things, that you're going to get a bit of a backlash. Now, we saw the opposite. We actually experienced people coming into the gallery and buying your works to celebrate that they had survived that time. But did that influence how you you went about your your, your decision making? Were you cognizant of the fact that this could backfire, or was that not an issue? Uh, no, I was very conscious of that. Uh, and given that you know, you're you're correct, the works following that shaky Isles theme did precede the quake. But the thing that I guess always crossed my mind in doing works post-quake was that it should infer that the quake has happened but not highlight any of the destructive aspects you know that, that might be a little a little too close to the bone so there had to be a certain amount of subtlety in the design of those pieces so that they were interesting they had the background of uh, uh, earth movement but they, they weren't objectionable put it that way yeah yeah, I think that sympathy or sympathetic view on it is primarily due to the fact that you are the person you are. I wonder whether some artists have a tendency to push hard against editing on behalf of others' emotions because they're totally wrapped up in the idea of art should challenge or art should push things. Do, do you have any philosophies around that? Yeah, certainly. I think the... My professional life was uh, involved in teaching aspects of business. And alongside that aspect of, of my work life, uh, I was a musician playing bluegrass music. And so 
the creativity of my hobby as well as the creativity that I was allowed to put in, into my work meant that the whole idea of being conscious of end users and uh, essentially starting from the market or the, the, the purchaser, whether it's a purchaser of music live, music in a recorded format, purchasing an item uh, to hang on a wall or purchase an item to put on your table and use, being conscious of the end user, the commercial side of uh, the, the creative world, to me, uh, it wasn't a big shift to, to marry those two together. And uh, one of the, the really important things was in meeting up and working with you that we had similar uh, experiences in terms of our backgrounds in, in, in coming to the, the work that we did together. Yes, I, I found that was, for me, uh, working alongside you, you know, we both had an awareness of commercial realities. We were both trying not only to connect with our art, but with a community and a viewership. So it meant we didn't have to argue or negotiate or even really half the time discuss the, the end goal. And maybe that's why I've been particularly fond of selling your work over the years, because it's been so easy for me to find a pathway into talking and explaining and sharing some of the concepts. So let's paint a, a bit of a quick picture. I'm going to try and remember a piece and, and give a rough overview so that people understand. We were talking about um, works that are either layered timber where instead of everything lining up, there, there's offsets or it could be coloured timber where a piece has been carved with different stratas or striations that are then coloured differently. So they kind of describe what could be an aerial view looking down on top of uh, the patchwork of a countryside with different crops growing in paddocks, but it also could be read as a cross-section of the land, but not all lining up right. Would that be a fair way to describe sort of the, the basis that you were building that, that whole idea around is how it fits yes. together without fitting together? <laughs> <laughs> there were a series of smaller pieces that essentially reflected the, the edge of Cloudy Bay here in Marlborough and the, that contrast between the, uh, the divisions of the land and depending on the crops, what colours they may be at different times of the year, all of that sort of thing, and the, the different depths in the ocean. And I keep thinking a lot of these pieces were created prior to the idea of drones being available. And the, uh, when, I, when I look at some of the images now of the, this coastal area where drone footage has been taken and, and pictures created, and I keep thinking, ah, been there, done that. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're ahead of your time, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to your decision-making, because I want to keep this, this as much as it is about your artwork, it's about your mindset that I'm really intrigued by because you do have this wonderful skill of being able to transition from a functional object one day into something that has so many layers of meaning that we're peeling it like an onion you know, a year later and still finding hidden things you can interpret into it. How much of that lives in you all the time? Like, Do you have to suppress it to make a, a simple but beautiful bowl or do you still find that there is an element of storyteller going on inside your inner dialogue as you will? It's an interesting question because when I look at my work life and my play life, both of the elements of creativity being allowable, but conformity or some sort of rigor also exists. And I guess the best example I can think of that would be if you think of music, where, and particularly in my favorite genre is bluegrass music, where, like any band form, there are roles that each of the musicians play where they are working together jointly. But in, uh, in bluegrass and particularly in jazz, the opportunity for a player to step outside of the, the, the arranged and uh, the rigor of the joint effort to do his or her own thing becomes very important. And if I translate that into the world of the visual arts rather than the uh, audio arts, 
the disciplines of proportion, form, shape, for example, are very, very important. And historically, uh, when you look at the works of uh, even someone like Leonardo da Vinci and the, the Mona Lisa, the golden rectangle exists in that particular painting all over it. And those proportions are part of the discipline of mathematical uh, relationships, composition, but you still have the opportunity within that, let's say, the medium of painting of creating colours, textures to give you a, a, a finish for your final object. And you can do the same sort of thing in most of the media, and certainly my medium of wood allows for a lot of that to happen. You can texture, you can colour, you can shape or misshape as you choose when you have a final end product uh, that you envisage. Wow. So when you're doing your work, I know you're a deep thinker, and it's one of the things that excites me is the discovery of these little little things within your work, not necessarily a visual thing, but an intellectual thing. You quite often have those elements, mathematics and things worked out. Is that something that you would suggest that a, an emerging artist, somebody who's in the process of transitioning from a mindset of being um, a functional maker into a creative maker, should they pay attention to that in your view? What, what types of things would you guide people towards? Because I'll just, uh, hands in the air and, and, and full disclosure, I'm an instinctive <laughs> maker. I, I don't, I, I struggle sometimes to lay claim to a lot of deep thought. I'll start with an idea, but once I get into it, I become kind of transfixed by the process. So there's not, in my world, a, a lot of deep thought at each stage. It's kind of more a, a frenzied mess of activity followed by a, oh, actually that worked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I have to admit that you may start work on a piece with plan A in mind. Something may happen during the process of creation where plan B has to be considered either because of an error or a change of thought or it hasn't, uh, it's not progressing satisfactorily and that's not uh, in terms of the, the rate of progress but it's just the what the image that's emerging is, is is not satisfactory. So I guess in looking at my own experiences, being exposed to the, the works and the thinking of you know, Gail Montgomery, Graham Priddle, Rolly Munro, who were at the beginning, I guess, of my wood creation world, they were the, the top national uh, people. And that led to the exposure of the works and the and sometimes the thinking of international artists who are working primarily in wood. And one of the events that nurtured that sort of process was uh, collaborations, uh, yeah, which you and I have been to uh, quite, quite a number of times, where exposure to other people's ideas and thinking so that where you haven't thought of it yourself, but someone has opened a door for you, that's to my mind, the working with with success. Now, success comes in cans. I can do it, but I'm not quite sure what. Uh, so exposure to other what's I find really, really important even now. When you're making a, um, a piece or a series, do you think about the past pieces in terms of I have to honour or in some way protect the integrity of the market or the reputation or is any of that attached to your making process? Difficult question, that one. I guess I try not to exactly repeat a piece unless it's something that I find intriguing. It doesn't have to be challenging, but just something that I remember that because I have photographed most of my works, not all of them, unfortunately. And, uh, because they're, they're sitting in my computer and I uh, do slideshows for myself, uh, usually at least once every couple of days, just to see if there's a spark of something left that I can add to a, a particular series. So that whole idea of honouring the tradition, if it's something that is, let's say, social or cultural, I'm always very careful about 
what I'm prepared to create. And certainly with the with the Grail series, uh, because that was sparked off by the, as I say, the Da Vinci Code and the role of Brown created uh, the image of Mary Magdalene. I did an awful lot of online research and reading to look at academic investigations of an interpretation of the Grail, so to speak. And some of the pieces uh, I've created are quite challenging to those who are primarily Christian faith and hold that faith quite strongly. But that's a challenge that I'm giving them as much as giving me, and I enjoy debate over that whole issue. So some pieces are there to spark off not necessarily indignation or, or dislike, but the start of discussion and debate. I like that because obviously I like to discuss and debate. As a marketer, your work has always offered us so many opportunities to wander up to somebody and have a conversation because there's always a starting point there for everyone. They, you know, I've never struck anyone who's just looked at your work, turned around and walked away and not had a reaction. And that, I guess, is the goal of a maker, isn't it? If we're going to put it on the wall or, or on a, a surface, we, we hope people are going to notice our effort. Yes, in some respects, the some of the works uh, that I've created, I've deliberately made them difficult to to fully understand. And there's sometimes three or four different layers of meaning that that a viewer would have to progress through before they get to what I consider to be the vital point, which is aha. I know what he's doing. Yeah, that's that aha part that I commented before. I love that that idea that somebody gets. An unexpected gift. It really is a wonderful thing when you discover something you weren't planning on from a piece. Is that something you actively hunt out, or it's, is it something that when it, when you finally discover it while you're making, you go, "This is now finished"? Or you know, how, how does that work for you? Do you get excited halfway through? It's usually part of the initial plan, and I guess the the degree to which the difficulty or you know, what is the actual part of the image that is intended to be, let's say, that next step. Sometimes that emerges by chance, but mostly by plan. And I can recall when I was living in Dunedin and our neighbour had this piece on the wall and it looked like a big blank piece of wood. And I thought, that is interesting. I wonder what it is. But he said to me when I was looking at it, step to your right, Two paces, now look at it. And there was a face that had been so subtly, not even carved, but smoothed out of the, the face of the wood, which was a very plain grain. And so it allowed this three-dimensional but very subtle portrait to emerge. And I thought, boy, that is just so clever, that idea of you having to scrutinise but also physically be in the right position, whereas uh, with some, certainly with some of the Grail pieces and the Pacifica pieces, you had to be mentally in the right position as well. And that, those are the challenges. I love challenging people who, who look at my stuff. Yeah, no, that, I, and I've seen an interpretation that you did of that, um, that idea that just blew me away. Damn, if that didn't look like it took some serious work, I mean, one just a little bit too much and it would have overwhelmed and you would have been able to see it from the front. So that degree of control, that desire to get to an end point, does that drive most of your work or does that just depend on the piece? Yeah, the, I guess I like the work to end up the way I had envisaged it. But I guess that the one thing I don't necessarily always like about my work is I don't head for perfection, I head for a an effect. And when I look, you, you mentioned you talked uh, just recently with Jason, I look at his work and see the perfection of it in the same way as I look at my son's work in, uh, in Jade, perfection. I like effect, probably because I don't have that ultimate skill or the patience to do perfection. So in interesting position to be in to admit a failing. But I think that's sometimes one of mine. It's interesting. I don't see it that way. See, I see that's where the musician in you comes to play. Excuse the pun. 
you are engaged in a more immediate world when you're a musician and you're responding to the mood of the room, the acoustics of the place, you know, whatever. There's so many variables that if you became that control junkie, that, that person that was driven by perfection to the point of having to have everything right in your work, uh, you wouldn't be able to respond like you do to the wood grain, to the material, to the, you know, just the moisture in the air changes the way timber works. So it, it's an interesting thing to hear you call it failing because I actually see it as being one of your greatest strengths is your empathy towards your material. God, wood, I, I never knew until I met you that you could colour, burn, te- you know, all the different things you do to timber. I, I thought of it as very much um, a building material. So, you know, there's obviously, it's it's an interesting thing how we view the way we do it versus others. Yeah, certainly. I can recall in my very early turning days, I uh, joined one of the local uh, wood turning groups and uh, a mixture of older turners and, and, and younger turners and, Regionally, in, in the Otago and Southland area, there would be weekends where the, all, all of the clubs from there, that part of the country would gather together and we'd make stuff and we'd swap ideas and there'd be a, a, a show table and people would do a show and tell thing. And by the stage that I got to turn ugly old bits of wood that had holes in them and uh, attacked them with a an angle grinder and, and a, a flamethrower. All of these old conservative blokes who I call old men in hats, they'd say, oh, look at that mad bastard, he's ruining a good piece. And yet these were, that, that was the start of the artistic creation process, the freedom to do what you bloody well like. Mm. <laughs> so they... Uh, and as I became involved in, at a national level with the turning process, I discovered that there was an awful lot of old men in hats who had lakes in New Zealand. Oh, and, yes. and I used to laugh <laughs> every time they would mumble about something not being perfect. <laughs> well, I also remember that when you were pushing through some of those boundaries probably 10, 12 years ago, there was a, a, a real reticence from that same group in terms of pricing. They didn't appreciate you putting things out there with a fair market price on them. There was a, you know, how dare you charge that much for, for a piece of wood? Because, again, they that was the way they viewed it. It was their hobby, not a, not a business. Do you think when it comes down to it that the art world has given you more permission than the craft world would have to be able to explore not just the ideas but the actual feasibility or viability of it as an income stream? Uh, yes, and I say that because I started in the, the in this wood creative aspect essentially upon uh, reaching the age of 60-ish and still working uh, I made pieces for a particular market segment, I guess, and priced into that area because it wasn't critical of a, that a piece sold immediately. So that issue, uh, my business head was saying, look, if you want to get into the the world of making a living or at least breaking even, then you, you've got to have either profit or cash flow. Decide which it is that is going to be important. And if both are important, you have to decide the proportions of each that will allow you to have an income stream and yet allow you also to venture into the the, the creative world. I can recall you and I did an exhibition together in 2008 that we called Word. And I had created a particular piece that was based around the idea of an Egyptian obelisk, but it had a verse, a haiku verse in Braille on, on its surface. That, that for years and eventually sold. And I think it might have been something like eight years from make to sale. Uh, oh, it didn't and, sit in the gallery all that time, but <laughs> we, <laughs> it, it, But you're right, it... it it was one of those ones, though, that I think probably had more engagement than any other piece of single artwork that we've ever had. More people touched it, more people talked about it, more people explored it, but it was waiting for that one person that truly, truly wanted it. Sounds really quite wanky when you say it that way, but 
Uh, it, it, <laughs> yeah. Because the Braille was beautifully done, you'd made it a visual symphony with the, um, were they brass or copper, the nails? I can't remember trying to recall. They were copper. Copper, yeah. And and that was on beach, wasn't it? No, it was on, I think it was cowries. Was it cowrie? Oh, wow. Okay, see. It, so it, was, I, it was either either cowrie or tote truck. Yeah, see, it was, like, it was a, what was it, six, well, no, it was close to probably seven foot tall. So it was a piece that people actually walked around. We, we joked one day from across the gallery, there was a group looking, and it looked like a group of American Indians doing a powwow dance as they all walked around bobbing up and down as they were looking at all the surfaces. <laughs> Uh, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, but you you know there were black and white cowboy movies. There would always be a scene of them yeah. dancing around a totem pole or or something. It just that horrid stereotype. But that's literally how it worked because it engaged at all levels from the floor up. So it I think was such a powerful piece that it wasn't really that the price was wrong or that the piece had anything, but it was. This is my interpretation, of course. But it really was one that people got intrigued in, but I'm not sure they could work out how to fit it into their lives. And yet when that was sold, the person who brought it, I think Janice sold that one that day, and the Braille element meant something to them, the actual words and, and a piece of artwork that talked to their life and, and their experiences. But to see somebody as excited as they were uh, leaving with a piece was something extraordinary. It's a shame most artists don't get to see what us gallerists get. It is, it's like watching an adoption happen as they fall in love. And, <laughs> and it's interesting that because that piece was done in Braille and in that joint exhibition we did, I had pieces using different, mostly ancient languages. I know, uh, and, and mathematics you used. <laughs> Anything yeah, that people yeah, didn't yeah. think of as a language uh, in modern day you know, European, New Zealand life, that's what you went with. Well, what was interesting is that as a consequence of that piece, I was given a commission by a... Uh, a medic who had come to Marlborough from Dunedin and uh, there were five uh, women who, who were close friends. One of them was blind and was uh, dying of cancer and she kept saying to her friends, I can imagine the colour blue, that's the only colour that I can imagine. And so they uh, wanted a piece created in Braille and the verse had been written by one of this group of women. And the piece had to be visually attractive, and it also had to have the text in Braille so that they, uh, you know, the, the ill person could appreciate uh, the work that her, her friends had asked for. And that was one of the most challenging pieces I've ever done because it had to be created as much by touch as by sight. Uh, and that was a real challenge. And that had come from the initial uh, Braille piece. And uh, those uh, the only two works that uh, I have created in Braille. It's interesting that uh, I, I haven't continued to do that. That was an extraordinary show for me. We agreed on Word. We then each went away and formulated our own plans without really much conversation at all about what we were going to do and then had our kind of big reveal to each other. And here I had written poems in steel uh, or carved um, metal and stamped words into it, and I'd taken it quite literally. So you could have absolutely knocked me over with a feather when I'm faced with mathematical formula, ogham, Sanskrit. God, what else did you pull in there? There was a whole pile of different ones. There was the Braille. Um, but it, again, just like you opened my eyes to how you could view wood, in very different forms, you also pointed out to me language. So we've had some incredible discussions over the years and we've explored ideas together. If you were to be giving advice to someone who was starting out, how important is this concept of other? Like, you know, having sounding boards, friends, buddies to work with, or do you think that um, that can dilute your thinking? I'm now answering my own question, damn it. <laughs> How important is a friend? <laughs> no, the answer is interacting with other free-thinking people is imperative. It's interesting when I look at my uh, non-work life, I played team sports. You know, I played soccer or football as it is, 
volleyball, rowing, played music in bands, uh, not a lot of solo work. So the idea of interacting with others, uh, other like-minded people, is really, really critical. And they, as I mentioned earlier, my uh, ha- having interaction with the, you know, the other artistic turners and, uh, and the other artists per se at Collab, that's an imperative. You know, you, you sort of, if you're giving ideas, absorbing ideas, your creative juices start to flow. And if you become an uninhibited thinker, then you can become an uninhibited creator as well. And I think that's that, that's what I would tell anybody who's thinking about, oh, can I be an artist? The answer is, of course you can. Get enmeshed in, 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 in that world. Because until you do, uh, you, you're looking at it from the outside, wondering what's in there. Get in and experience it. I like that. So my personal motto for years has been resist the ordinary. I find as soon as I'm doing something that feels comfortable or familiar to the point that it feels ordinary, that's when I've got to pull aside. Do you have a driving philosophy? I like to create challenge. And that challenge is as much for myself as the viewers. If I think I want to challenge them with, with some aspect in this, let's say, the Grail, Grail series. Right, my challenge is to come up with something that I believe is creative and original and crazy, maybe. And then at the end of all of that, if someone else finds it a challenge, then I'm happy. That's cool. I also believe that defines artists, somebody who creates problems to solve. It seems to be one of the things that we're really good at doing is is making it hard on ourselves so that we're engaged. When you come to look at your body of work, and there's been so many different wonderful things that we've shared throughout the years and you know things that you've ended up sending all over the show, is there any one work that you look back on and think, damn, I really nailed that one? Yes, and it's a piece. The title of, uh, of it is Young Charles Darwin's First <laughs> yes, Homework <I> Assignment. <laughs> One of the artists who came to collaborations was John Vanderkolk from Oz, and he created a piece that was sort of, a, it had a scaffold, and I, I think it was a, part of a human form or something, but the idea of that relationship between man-made and naturally made uh, sat in my head for quite a while until I thought, because I had done a series of pieces that the series was called Primeval and the fascination with things like pterodactyls and uh, you know, that the web wing form that bats have and mythical dragons have and so on. That, that was part of that whole thing. And the other part was the structure of ancient life form and uh, trilobites, which were an ocean-dwelling form. That was among them. There was also the idea of plant life. And the idea of the young Charles Darwin's homework thing was kicked off by uh, one of my friends who incidentally had been doing a course on haiku verse when you and I were creating this word exhibition. And his brother, is an author who uh, wrote a, a, a book called Mr. Darwin's Shooter, and that was about uh, a fellow whose surname was Covington, who was uh, one of the uh, assistants for Darwin on his, his voyage. And that whole idea of marrying historically uh, created stuff with, with Darwin's idea and the scaffold that I can remember John that Nicole created, and I thought, I'm going to marry my ideas along with history and with an observation uh, of someone else's work. And so this whole idea of a partly uh, growing leaf form, which was that the, the natural aspect, and then the structural aspect, which is the scaffold, which is the, the means of holding this piece in place while it's completed. And, okay, so what's the idea of the relationship between the natural world and the man-made world? Ah, yes, we'll have something that relates to Charles Darwin. So when he was a boy, he must have sort of fiddled about with stuff. Let's call it his, uh, his first piece. No, no, it's a homework assignment. Someone else had told him to get on with it. 
Uh, and so that piece was created in that form. And it has subsequently uh, moved an idea for one of my latest pieces, which is the household of the Darwins was subjected to a firestorm. Some of the pieces were partially destroyed, including Charles's first homework assignment. It was partially destroyed, so it had to be restored. So the piece is entitled Aftermath, Restoration, Work in Progress. An idea can take quite a number of years for uh, the next part of the idea to actually be created. And uh, I was excited for two reasons. One, because it was a follow-on piece, and secondly, it was the first major piece that I'd done in 18 months. What a way to jump back into it, eh? I love that young Darwin's piece because people talked about their memories of uh, Meccano and building sets when they were children. So it took people on a journey, both within the work, but also it it gave them permission to have these other conversations. And I truly do believe that that's what art should do. It should transform a space or an emotion or at the very least the viewer's perception of now. And, you know, that, that was a very good piece to choose. I'm, I'm, and as you were describing it, just the memories coming flooding back of such joy. And it's one of the things I want to thank you for publicly is how your work in the gallery environment has always brought out these wonderful conversations. And one of the things that you've done that I think really is a powerful tool that we haven't touched on, and I'd like to cover just before we finish up, is the importance of titling. You know, you, you you don't force people into a place with your work, but your titles often give them enough of an impetus as to what you might have been thinking about or where you were, were coming from that they get a starting point. How, how much work do you start with a title? Where does title fit into your process? I cannot recall starting with a title, but a title may emerge or... Uh if it's something uh, that relates to the the general idea, and I guess an example of this would be in the primeval series uh, that, that I talked of, where these pieces reflect uh, several million years ago's worth of activity or, or lack of it, and one particular series of pieces which use the idea of the the webbed wing, the dragon wing, so to speak, or oh, the, yes. bat yep. the bat wing. To create the idea that, okay, so this has got some historical significance. So is there a botanical or a a Latin nomenclature that this should have to give it that that standing, so to speak? And so I can think of one piece that is called Terracanthi, and it's spelled P-T-E-R-O-C-A-N-T-H-I-I. That's artificial Latin nomenclature, but simply for the reason to give it some sort of scientific standing or artificial standing. It leads people, though, to the idea that there's something that you have to dig for, but it's worth it because it's been qualified. Somebody put a Latin name on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's proper. Uh, Well, I remember... you, you did one, um, there were the two wings, two bat wing forms where the the connection of the wing where it would actually normally attach to a body were two spiralled pieces that interlock. So they were two separate pieces, but they clicked together into the spiral to create quite a, a, a dynamic piece because you could you could arrange it in a number of different ways. Can you remember the title on that one? Yeah, that's the piece that I just described. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> there was terracanthi and terracanthus, so that the the singular and the plural, because there were a number of pieces done in that manner. Yes, uh, ranging from one piece which when uh, placed on the wall was uh, about fifteen or sixteen hundred uh, across, and the, the the set that I've I've kept for myself, they would be or oh, something like. Uh, 350 to 400 across. Right, yep. So, but certainly, and the reason for the the duality or the two pieces was a simple function of the size of the wood that I was able to get. And that's something that the material does influence, doesn't it? You you more or less are still always working, you know, a painter can stretch a large canvas if they have a big idea or, or something they're wanting to present in scale. 
there there are ways that you can make timber bigger by joining and and connecting. But do, do you find that that often will form the idea for you when you're looking at a piece, or do you have an idea then go looking for the piece? It's often a mixture of what is the material available, what idea lends itself to uh, a composition through a number of pieces, and the issue of size. Is this going to be too big for a household, uh, or is it too small to be a significant piece? Is it too small to put a, a fairly hefty price on it? Because one of the things I guess that we both noticed is that Kiwi seem to think bigger is better, therefore they'll pay more money for it, which is in itself a fallacy, I guess. But all of those factors influence sort of how the finished piece will be and what price will go on it, who uh, who is the market that we, we're targeting for it. And that marketing element, that thinking about where is it going to go, how is it going to be consumed or or assumed into people's lives. It's something that you've always had a fair understanding of. I'm guessing that's because of your past life experiences. Have you felt compromised at all with that or is it something you're comfortable with? No, I think if if the mantra is people have got to be satisfied with the piece, they're happy with the piece and they can see themselves uh, uh, retaining that happiness or satisfaction for an awful long time. You make the pieces for other people and even though there are some pieces which I had never sold that I had retained for myself, if other people are happy with them and it's not just a case of selling them for the money, it's selling them or moving them on for the satisfaction that the the, the owners have uh, in, in those pieces. Well, there's also something there about value systems. And this is a conversation that as a gallerist, I'm sure I'll have with another gallerist in one of these interviews. But, you know, when you put a price on something, you're also validating somebody's taste. You're giving them, I like that, and it's worth something. Therefore, what I like is worth something. There's so many stratas attached to the whole pricing and marketing of a piece of artwork. It's a bit unfair to lay all that onto a piece of work at the beginning, but have you looked at, say, a a, a particularly rare piece of timber that you've had for a while and thought, no, I'm not going to waste that on an average idea. I'm waiting for the best idea to hit for that one. Yes, I've got a piece of wood I've had for... uh 15 years and I keep looking at it and I keep thinking no, I haven't got an idea for it yet <laughs> walk away. do like Elvis, walk out of the building <laughs> <laughs> Elvis has left the building hey that yeah, sounds exactly. like a perfectly good way to finish this interview, it, it's a kind of weird but that's often the way we work so Bruce, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate what you've, you've put out there for us and is there any last words you want to leave people with just as a you know, bye-bye thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he chooses not to use words at all. <laughs> Typical bloody artist. Hey, thanks, mate. <laughs> Good luck. Pleasure. Catch you later.